The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. We're looking at Psalm 106 and we're continuing this, these hallelujah psalms, the ones that begin and end with praise the Lord, which is this Hebrew word, hallelujah. And this is a long one. Last week we looked at just two verses and now you're going to get the, the shock if you, looked at one, if you haven't read it yet. It's 48 verses. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're looking, we're going to kind of take a big picture of you today. And I, hopefully this will give us some perspective as if you're lost in the woods, what do you need? If you, if you don't, you need to call a friend, you need a GPS, you know, but it would be nice if you had like a drone and you could just put the drone up and you could kind of see and get a view of like what's going on. And sometimes I think in our life, we start to wonder, is my life really going anywhere? Like, am I making any progress? It seems like I'm playing whack-a-mole with sins. And the more I start beating them down, the more they pop up. And the more I beat them down, they pop up faster. And it, it seems insidious. And sometimes we wonder, you know, what is my purpose? Why am I here? And then you kind of look at your family tree and you look back at your generational history. And most of us have some unsavory things in our family tree. Of sins that have gone on for generations or some big ones. Um, I mean, my, my family history started with my parents were pregnant out of wedlock, and so they got married. And then my brother came two months early, and people could count. This was five months after they got married, and the baby came, and that was a big deal in 1967. But the Lord worked through that. And what I want you to see this morning as we read this history some of it's quite unsavory, just as we were confessing and reading the, the story of Exodus, and you're seeing God's faithfulness, and you're seeing that people continue to sin, and what we're going to see is that God's grace is greater than our sin, and that where grace abounds, or sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So let's be reminded of this big picture story. This is kind of, you get the drone up, and you get the bigger picture that gets you out of the woods of, here's a story of the nation's history. And you have a few of these places in the Bible. And if you've never read the Bible before, where might be some good places to start? This will be one of them, because it's going to give you a history. You could read Acts 7 of Stephen's sermon, and you could read Paul's sermon in Acts 13, or a couple of these places, Psalm 78, and, and this one, where they give you the big picture of the Bible. They're painting broadly for you. So let's give attention to this great story. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not consider the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, 
that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hands of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy, and the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving and craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. And fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who has done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him, to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness, would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out before them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed, and, it was, and that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the lamb was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played to whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hands of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. And nevertheless... He looked upon their distress when, they, when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God. Gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and, pray, and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. I need your prayers. Let's pray. Lord, we all need help looking at this text. There's so much here, so much for us to learn, to be humbled by, to grow in our, our gratitude and understanding your grace. Be at work here, Holy Spirit. Pray that you'd speak through me. May we hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And may we yield the fruit of obedience and repentance and humility. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, there's a particular theologian by the name of G.K. Burkauer, and he's got one particular quote that's worth remembering, and it's basically, he just boils down, he says, all of theology is grace. 
and all of ethics is gratitude. It's not quite exact, but it's basically, if you, what is the Bible teaching about in theology? It's the grace of God. And then the ethics is just our behavior. What should that produce in us? Grace should produce gratitude. And this is all about grace that should lead to gratitude. And if you notice, this psalm begins with, praise the Lord, oh, give thanks to the Lord. How does Psalm 105 begin? Oh, give thanks to the Lord. How does Psalm 107 begin? Oh, give thanks to the Lord. There are three history lessons from three different perspectives. It's kind of like taking a uh, wide-angle lens and taking a big panoramic picture and looking at three different pictures of the grace of God. And Psalm 105 is, is all great news of isn't God great? He does all these things. He, 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 he. You know, and it just keeps listing all the mighty acts of God, but it doesn't go into the sinfulness of Israel. Very, very lightly touched on at all. But Psalm 106 is now, whoa, look at the grace of God now in the backdrop of the sinfulness of the people of God. And I want us to see this morning that God is doing something that's much bigger generationally, where there is a connectedness that is pretty obvious here. I mean, you know, the, the psalm has almost the whole psalm, right, from verse 7 to the middle of verse 7, where we move from we to they. The pronouns all change to they, right? And so from, from verse 7 to the end of the psalm until you get to verse 47, from 7 to 46 is all they, all third person plural, right? And you're like, man, it's they did this, they did that, they did that, they did this, they did that, they did that. Well, I don't have anything to do with me. That was them. Oh, no, no, no. Verse 6 We, our, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedness. There you get that first person plural, right? But then you go back up to verse 4, and it's even more singular than that. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people, help me when you save them. There is very much a connectedness. And it's, you know, it's one of these wonderful things that every time you preach in America, you have to remind people that there's a connectedness theme in the scripture that the people of old would confess generations before them sin and own it as their own and recognize part of the plight that we're struggling with today is because of people's sins of old that are the people of God of old. And so the, the, the psalm is ending with a prayer. It's save us, O God, save us, O Lord, O God, and gather us from among the nations. So we know the problem is they're in exile. And the psalmist is writing in the midst of exile, and he's reminding, and he's seeing this whole pattern of sin, and he's asking God to deliver. And what I want you to see, I'm going to try and see a few things today, but is seeing that, that God's at work, okay? So there's a flow to the psalms, okay? O. Palmer Robertson's written a, a whole book called a flow to the Psalms, discovering their theology or their structure in theology. And so there's five books to the Psalms, okay? So let's just take a look for a minute, okay? Let's look at what God's doing through these five books. So the first book of the Psalms is Psalm 1 to 41. So if you go back to Psalm 41, and you're going to need your Bible because we're going to truck through a lot of scriptures quickly. But the end of the first book, the first book is all about God blessing the righteous 
as they meditate on the Word of God, right, day and night, and you realize, well, that's ultimately going to be Jesus. He's the only one who's meditating day and night on the Word of God and delighting in it. But you, you see the contrast of the wicked. The wicked are like chaff, and they're blown away, but the righteous are they're like a tree planted by streams of water. And we, That's an introduction psalm. And then the next introduction, Psalm is Psalm 2, and we see the righteous and the wicked are in tension, right? And they, they're trying to get rid of the anointed one. They're trying to get rid of, and that's the word for Messiah. They're trying to get rid of the Messiah. They don't want anything to do with the Messiah, and God laughs from heaven because I've already installed him on, his, on the throne. He's going he's gonna to rule over all the nations. That's going to happen. First two chapters are just introduction. And then you get to Psalm 3, and you have David now on the run and his own sons trying to kill him. And Psalm 3 is now David is... is is he's on the run and he actually has to go barefoot and get out of town and leave quickly or Absalom's going to take over the throne. And so all of a sudden from chapter 3 on in Psalms, we start to see the tension between the righteous and the wicked. But most of the first book of the Psalms are all Psalms of David. And everything's about David. David's great. David, David, David. David's our man. Everything's great. But Psalm 41 ends with David's been betrayed. He's, in Psalm 41, verse 9, my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Huh. So now things aren't going so well at the end of book one. That's going to tell us about somebody else who has somebody else who's a close friend to him, sitting at the right hand at the Lord's Supper, who's going to betray him. Who might that be? That'd be Judas, right? So Judas's fulfillment of Psalm 41.9 is, is right there, right? That's, that's, a, that's a prophecy talking about the greater David's going to happen to him. But every, all the books of the Psalms end with what? Blessed be the Lord our God, right? From Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. So when you see that, boom, end of book one. Now we start book two. But we're kind of low because David, our man, has been betrayed. Psalm 42, how's it begin? Right? You get all these questions. People are saying, where's your God? Why are you downcast? Oh, my soul, why are you in turmoil within me? Verse 9, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Verse 11, why are you cast down? 43.2, why do I go mourning? It's down, down, down. It's a, it's a lament psalm of discouragement. So book 2 is, is starting low. And then we go to book 2, and we go from 42 to 72. So then look over at 72. So in 72, it ends on a really high note. And we get this great promise about David. He's gonna, God's going to put one of his, descend, or his descendants will always be on the throne, and, and it's a prayer for Solomon. But you realize this is a lot bigger than Solomon. This is Messianic psalm. This is going to be about a king who's going to have dominion from sea to sea, verse 8, and from the river to the ends of the earth, and that all the kings are going to fall down before him, and all nations will serve him, verse 11. Man, this, this king is going to be incredible, Right? And he's going to deliver the needy when they call and the poor and him who has no helper. He's got pity on the weak and the needy. Like, who's that talking about, right? Well, we sing about it. We sing about Isaac Watts and, and Jesus shall reign. Jesus shall reign is all of Psalm 72. It's all about Jesus. And how does it end? Well, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, right? Verse 18. Blessed be his glorious name forever and this wonderful promise or it's a prayer, but it's also a promise several times in the Bible that the whole earth will be filled with his glory, and it's praying, may his, the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen, book two ends. All right, we're, we're, we're making some progress. We're going somewhere. How does Psalm 73 begin? Back like 42. 
We're back in the dumps again, back in the, in the struggles. For me, my, my feet had almost slipped. I, would, I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And, and Lord, where are you? All these, the wicked just never seems to have any adversity. Everything he does just prospers like, like mad. And he just said, when I, verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Like, it's not beginning so well here in, in book three. And book three takes us really into this period of, of um, leading up to Psalm 89. So this is a shorter book, but Psalm 89, so now we're going to get to the end of, the, of this book of the Psalms, book three. And book three ends with this great, it's all about David. David's our man, and God has made promises to David. And so the psalmist is saying, you know, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever with my mouth. I'll make known your faithfulness to all generations. Why? Because you have said, verse 3, that I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. This is great. And it's all about God's faithfulness. And then you look down at verse 24, and God is just... And he says, my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in his name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea, his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you're my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I'll make him the, the firstborn. That means you know, the exalted one, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I'll keep with him forever. My covenant will stand firm for him. I'll establish his offspring forever, and his throne is the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law and do not... Walk according to my rules. If they violate my statutes, do not keep my commandments. Then I'll punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not move from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. Sounds great, doesn't it? Until you get to verse 38. But now you've cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. And on it goes. And then verse 46, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? And then he says, verse 49, Lord, where's your steadfast love of old? Which, which you're, by your faithfulness you swore to David. It ain't happening. Now we're in exile. And book three ends in utter disappointment. We're cast off. We're, we're now in exile, and this great, all these great promises that you made to David sounds great at the beginning of Psalm 89. By the time you finish, where is it? Psalmist is crying out. Then it ends with, oh, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. And then you get to book four. And book four you have hardly any Psalms of David. And you actually start with Moses. It takes you back even back into the time of Moses and verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you. Teach us to number our days that we might get a, a heart of wisdom. And verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as you have seen. We're a people in exile. And so now what you have is you have these praise psalms in the middle of the 90s of the psalms that are called king psalms because there's no king on the throne in Israel. We have no king. 
We're in exile, but we're going to praise him because we know this. Psalm 93, 1, the Lord reigns. How does Psalm 96 end? He will judge the world in righteousness and his peoples in, in faithfulness. How does Psalm 97 begin? The Lord reigns. How does Psalm 99 begin? The Lord reigns. How does Psalm 98 end? He will judge the worlds with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. He sees, though he's not on the throne right now through this promise he made to David, it's going to happen. The Lord is still on his throne. He's still reigning and ruling. That might be helpful for us to know. God's still at work. And then you do get a few Beautiful psalms of David, Psalm 101, and then Psalm 103, right? And they're all leading up to the, then we get to the story of 105, 106, and 107. Well, how does 106 end? We're in exile. Save us, O God, gather us from among the nations. We've been punished for our sins. And, he, and he, it's all a lament and confessing nationally all the sins of the people of God that are before us that have led to even now we're in exile. That's how the book four ends. Well, how does book five begin? Answer to prayer. Look what it says. Give thanks to the Lord for he's good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Answer to prayer from verse 47. Now we see he's answering. And the people of God are doing what? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. How does book five end? Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. There's a story that's being told through the Psalms. There's a flow, there's a pattern to each of these five books. And we're here at the end of book four in the midst of exile. And we're seeing this incredible mix of pronouns. We're seeing God is doing something. He is at work in the midst of the people's sin. And we're to, to give thanks to him because he's good. His steadfast love endures forever. And what we see in this psalm is the people continue to sin and God continues to forgive. Does that mean that we should just sin all the more, that grace should abound? By no means. It should humble us all the more. But let's just trace the story, kind of the, the big picture here. What's going on? Well, it starts with the Exodus. So if you look at verse 6 to 12, it's all tracking the, the part that we began the worship service of here they were in, in, in Egypt and they're, they're being delivered and, and yet right in the midst of them delivering and God getting ready to open up the Red Sea and have them part through the middle, they are telling Moses, you brought us out here to die. This is all your fault and the Lord's fault. Why has he brought us out here to kill us in the wilderness? And so they're... Uh, and so the psalmist is recognizing this and even the confessing the sins of old of these other people where his we in verse 6, the we have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedness, our fathers when they were in Egypt. And so he's seeing all this mess and he's confessing it as his own. It's good for us to, to think about this for a minute because I think, you know, when Tokyville came to U.S. 1830s, a long time ago, you remember what he said? He wrote a lot of stuff, but he said about 
the effects of democracy, says such folks owe no man anything and hardly expect anything from anybody. They form the habit of thinking of themselves in isolation and imagine that their whole destiny is in their own, in their own hands. He goes on to say, thus not only does democracy make men forget their ancestors, but also clouds their view of their descendants and isolates them from their contemporaries. Each man is forever thrown back on himself alone, and, and there is danger that he may be shut up in the solitude of his own heart. Right? So we're really big into, you know, as Americans, we think, well, it, it, that's their problem. That was not my problem. I wasn't there. And, and, you know, we have a lot of issues culturally where people are trying to do some interesting things right now in our culture. And I'm not, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I can say what it is for the church. For the church, where we have sinned as the church, we can repent. And we can say as a church, we need to be different. But I think we all know, like, on the one hand, we say, you know, we love this idea of, like, you know, all that matters is me. But, you know, it's interesting, we don't really believe that. I mean, you just watch the news this week, right? I mean, I couldn't believe, like, watching the, the news on Thursday, the local news, the whole segment was pretty much, the whole thing was all about burgundy and sold. And, and the people rejoicing, and they're at the bars and all these different places, and everybody's celebrating that Dan Snyder is finally out of here. We've got a new owner. And do you think that the, the new owner, when he got up to speak, can you imagine if he would have said, man, oh, man, oh, and all that matters is the defensive end versus that tackle, and all that matters, the linebacker pitches up the blitz, and the defensive back covers the wide receiver. That's all that matters. How do you think that will go over Man, oh, man, oh, that's all that matters. He didn't say anything about that. He gets up and says what? He acknowledges that the culture's terrible, and it's on me and us as leadership to change it. And Magic Johnson says, you know, basically that the name of the team is on the table, like, because that's still residue from Dan Snyder, and it's so bad we want to get rid of anything that's tied to him because... Corporate, there's a corporate identity here, and it all stinks. He's harassed women. He's cooked the books. We charge him for $60 million. Sounds like a lot. 1% of the total sale. But that's all the news is talking about, right? Because of collective identity, DC has been in a funk if you're a football fan for, you know, ever since he took over the team. We do recognize there's a corporate connection. At least the news did. You all looking at me like, hey, I don't watch that stuff. We got hope coming. We've got a new, <laughs> new owner. All right. So there is a connection. And I would just say for us as Presbyterians, we need to own a little bit of our history. And I think sometimes that's hard for us to go back and say, really? Like, let's just go back. You go back to the Civil War, before the Civil War, Robert Louis Dabney, huge Southern Presbyterian theologian. He was a professor at Union Seminary, which was the Southern Presbyterian Seminary from 1853 to 1869. Professor of Systematic Theology, chief of staff under Stonewall Jackson, wrote a biography for Stonewall Jackson. His racism and his... Um, exaltation of the white man is inexcusable. This is what he has said representing Christians and Presbyterians. 
He wrote this in a Southern Presbyterian life. You can look it up. This is what he says. An insuperable difference of race, made by God and not by man, and character and social condition, makes it plainly impossible for a black man to teach and rule white Christians to edification. That's what he said. He also said, I greatly doubt whether a single Presbyterian Negro will ever be found to come fully up to that higher standard of learning, manners, sanctity, prudence, and moral weight and acceptability which our Constitution requires. Now, what that, who that knows the Negro does not know that he is a subservient race, that he is made to follow and not to lead, not to lead that his temperament, idiosyncrasy, and social relation make him untrustworthy as a depository of power. That's coming from one of the fathers of our faith. And you fast forward then, 1964. This was my systematics professor in seminary. He wrote a book called Some Thoughts by a Southern White Christian, The Racial Problem Facing America. Morton Smith loved Robert Louis Dadney. He loved these, these guys. This is what he said. As a matter of practical consideration in a culture that has been sharply segregated for so long, it seems the point of wisdom to keep a segregated pattern in the sanctuary where there's joint worship. The fact is that most Southern white congregations would be willing to have Negroes attend if they were coming for true worship and would be willing to sit together. This has been the traditional pattern in the South, and it could not be continued if it were not for the pressure groups seeking to integrate churches. Most Christians throughout the rest of the nation and world are shocked to hear that Negroes are turning away from white churches in the South. The ground for this is the assumption that the reason for the coming of the Negro to the church today is not to worship, but rather to integrate and prove a point. That this is the case is shown by the fact that when offered segregated seating in the church, the Negroes refuse it. They insist that they should be allowed to enter and sit where they please. If they were truly interested in worship, it seemed that they would be willing to sit in any section provided for them. It's hard to imagine Jesus exhibiting the spirit of the modern integrationist on this point. The fact is that Jesus taught a spirit of humility. He taught that one should take the lowest seat at a feast, and then he invited up, up to a higher. How much better than insisting on a higher and having to be sent to a lower place? Very sad. Very, very sad. He was confronted with this when all these issues came to light in the early 2000s. And there's no record that he ever repented or disavowed what he had said here. This is our heritage. And so when our denomination comes out and, and makes a confession of a we and a they because we have sinned because they have sinned and identifies with it, we should be okay with that because that's what the Bible does. There's a corporate connection to these things of the past and they still bleed over and affect us today because we're still part of that line and of that train and we're still trying to work through that. And so what do we do? And I'm not saying, you know, I mean, there's just a lot of crazy things that people are saying. But as a church, how do we love one another? How do we work to reach all races and all tribes and all peoples and to bring them up to have equal value and not to say, you have to sit over there and you have to sit over there? It's not right. And so the, the psalmist here is owning up to here we are in exile and he's recognizing his sin. And so what you see in this chapter as we keep going through this 
is that we're seeing God's grace, but the grace comes through a mediator, an intercessor. Somebody has to intervene. Because what you see as you read through this chapter, right, is, so you, you look over, take for example, uh, verses 16 to 18. You know, you have the people that were jealous of Moses and Aaron. And, and this is the story of, of Korah and, and Dathan and, they, and the company of Ibram. And, and here, they're, they're, the Lord, I mean, Moses just says, okay, if, I, if there's nothing special about me, and I'm, you know, they're all saying, we're all holy before the Lord, and who do you think you are? Moses thinks you're so special. And Moses just prays and says, Lord, if, 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 if what they're saying is true, then and they just die a normal way, then I'm not the man of God. But, but if the Lord, if the, the earth just opens up its mouth and swallows them, then you know that I'm a prophet of the Lord. And that's exactly what happens is, and the people are screaming, ah, you know, run, because, you know, we're all going to be, the earth's going to swallow us up. So as you're reading Numbers 16, you have at the end of the chapter, the very next day after Korah and his children, the whole family is swallowed up. And, and, and fire comes out and burns up the offering. And the very next day, they accuse Moses and Aaron again, saying, you've killed the people of the Lord. And the congregation gathered against Moses, against Aaron. They turned toward the tent of meeting. Behold, the cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, get away from the midst of the congregation, that I might consume them in a moment. They fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer, put fire on it from the altar, lay incense on it, carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for, for them, for wrath has gone out from the Lord, for the plague, the plague has begun. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Numbers 16.48. And those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who had died in the affair of Korah. And so what we're seeing is, okay, we saw some, we're starting to see a pattern here that God is, gets, he, it's not like it's, oh, no big deal, the people just sin. I mean, each time, God is angry, and he sends different afflictions and wrath. I mean, how does verse 15 end? He sent the wasting disease against them. How does verse 18 end? A flame burned up the wicked, fire broke out in their company right? Verse 23, somebody, it says, now Moses stood in the breach before them to turn away the wrath from destroying them. So Moses has to intervene here after the golden calf incident, and, and God just says, let me just destroy them in a moment, and Moses has to intercede and plead with them. What will the nation say about you if that's the case? And Lord, please, you know, he intercedes on behalf of the people, and God hears his prayer, but God is angry. Right? And then we see verse 27. Now they're, they're being scattered among the nations, scattering them from the lands. Then we're talking about the exile because it's a punishment. And then you get to, to verse uh, 28 to 31, and you have this story of Phineas. And he is this wild story in the, in, from Numbers 25 where wrath is broken out, and the people are, are, you know, there's a plague that's broken out, and these two particular people are so brazen in their, in their immorality that they're brazenly in the tent, Phineas goes in and strikes them both with a spear in the act of their sexual immorality and kills them both, and it was counted to him as righteousness as he stopped the plague, okay? That's what verse 30 and 31 are talking about, okay? God was angry, and he's angry again in verse 32. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, 
And here, this is where Moses strikes the rock, and yet he's interceding for them, but now he's angry at the people. Well, when he's striking the rock, who's he striking? The rock was Christ. And so God is being struck. So as we read that passage this morning, you know, it says, you know, I'll go before you, I'll stand before you, I'll take the blows, and water will come out. Well, that's ultimately pointing us to Jesus who did take the blows and water came out in blood. And so we need, as the people of God, a mediator. We, I mean, this, this chapter is just screaming as the prayer ends, save us, gather us from among the nations. We need a mediator because God again and again is upset and he's angry. And we see that in verse 40, the anger of the Lord being kindred against his people. And yet, what do we have? When we get to the bigger story of the, you know, you zone out, you zoom into the, or you, you go to the New Testament, and what do we have? We, just, we learn about there's one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Christ Jesus. And this mediator is able to pay for the sins committed under the first covenant. And now he's the mediator of a new covenant. And this new covenant now, he's going to save us from these dead works now and cleanse our consciences to serve the living God. And now you haven't come to, to Mount Sinai, you've come to, to Mount Zion when you, when you gather and worship and when you get to the crescendo of Hebrews 12 of what have you come to? You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, right? Whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And the blood of Abel, his blood was crying out, justice, justice. This blood's now crying out, mercy, mercy. And then the writer of Hebrews is saying, he's saying that we're not to neglect the one who's speaking to us. Well, how is he speaking to us? It's the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's speaking the word of mercy. So do not reject that voice. Do not reject that God has for, forgives sins. And so now, you know, and you get to Romans 8, you get to that great crescendo, like, who's to condemn? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Jesus has been raised, and what is he doing now? He's interceding for us. What can now separate us from the love of Christ? We have a mediator. I'm writing these things to you, John says, so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have what? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he's the propitiation for our sins, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And so this great picture of gather us from among the nations is we have the picture in Revelation of the end of the story, that it's a number that was beyond arithmetic, that nobody could number that he had ransomed or rescued or redeemed a people for himself from all the peoples, every tribe, every tongue, every people. He's building this massive church and he's rescued them and he's gathered them from all the nations. And when the Spirit's poured out on Acts 2, you have all these different people groups that are all there at Pentecost and the Spirit of God comes down because God is now gathering his people from among the nations. He is still fulfilling the prayer of 47 and the answer to prayer of verse, Psalm 107, verse 3. And so the, the, the righteous are now to say, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. He has raised up another David, the one who is on the throne forever and the one who intercedes and advocates for us forever. 
We are set free in him and delivered from captivity and from exile and being cut off from God. He has come to bring us near to himself. Give him the praise. Give him the thanks. Let me just close by saying a couple things to us as what we can learn from this, just an application. One, let this be a balm to any of you here that think that God can't forgive something that you've done. If we've lived long enough, we've committed some big sins. The people committed some big sins here. So much so they sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. Can't get much lower than that. Did God forgive that? He did. He had mercy even on Manasseh. So let it be a balm if you think that your sin is too big, God is bigger still. Let it bring hope to those who sin greatly, who are tempted to think you're too far gone or you think somebody else is too far gone or some family member is too far gone, you're not too far gone. Let it bring humility to the people of God if we think that our story is all rosy and we can't share the real depths, you know, kind of like the commercial, never let them see you sweat. No, no, it's okay to let people see you sweat. It's okay because our shame has been covered by Jesus and we can tell the real story. We don't have to do hagiography or saint worship where we, we paint people in colors and we're not given the full story of no, we're, we're all a mess and Jesus is cleaning us up. Let it be a warning to those who think we don't struggle with sin. If you don't think we struggle with big things, it's all laid out here. We're constantly struggling. One commentator put it like this, Colin Delich, the whole history of Israel has essentially the same fundamental character, that Israel's unfaithfulness does not annul God's faithfulness. Or as Matthew Henry put it like this, we must give glory to God by making confession, not only of his goodness, but our own badness, which serves as foils to each other. Our badness makes his goodness appear the more illustrious, as his goodness makes our badness the more heinous and scandalous. May it lead to a greater humility and sorrow for sin. And as Matthew Henry says, even these, the sorrow for sin must not put us out of tune for praising God. And lastly, as Paul said this, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Romans 3, 3 and 4. Where law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your atonement, for rebels, for enemies, for sinners. For this is us. We are a collective people, individuals, collective people of God that are sinful in need of your grace. Thank you, Lord, that you are redeeming for yourself a people and conforming us to the image of yourself. Lord, we pray that our shame and our sin would not hinder us now from obedience and thankfulness and gratitude as we see what you have done to save us, to bring us to yourself. Thank you that, Lord Jesus, you have satisfied the wrath of God and it is finished and that we are accepted and complete in your sight. We thank you this day in Jesus' name. Amen.